Nathan East is arguably the busiest bassist on the planet. With over 40 years of performing at the highest level, Nathan continues his musical journey with touring and sessions for artists such as Eric Clapton, Daft Punk, Foreplay, and Toto. He has also touched the music of so many incredible artists, such as Barry White, Phil Collins, Kenny Loggins, Michael Jackson, Sting, Babyface, B.B. King, Patrice Ruchin, Al Jarreau, and the list goes on. Having spent his entire career as an A-list bassist, he never took the time to create his own solo album until now. Nathan's self-titled debut solo project will be released tomorrow, March 25th, by the Yamaha Entertainment Group. The album brings together just what you would expect, a stellar lineup of musicians and guests, impeccable production quality, and well-crafted arrangements and musicianship on 14 tracks. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Nathan East. Hey, Nathan, thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here, guys. Hey, welcome. Well, you know, Nathan, many of the guests uh, on Inside Music Cast, you know, are the great studio musicians that have played on, on the biggest hits for the biggest names in the business, just like yourself. And, and so many of them, like you, are, are, you know, always so consistently busy with session work that they, they simply can't find the time to produce an album project of their own. And, and you know, you don't seem to have slowed down at all. <laughs> and so tell us about, you know, how you found the time to write and produce your new self-titled uh, solo debut. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, it's one of those things that is, if you're going to do it, you just have to just jump into the deep end. <laughs> and that's what I did um, with, the help, with the help of Chris Giro and Yamaha Entertainment Group, uh, my label. <laughs> they, really, they really helped me out a lot. I mean, I was actually on tour when, you know, things like studio has to be booked, the musicians, and I mean, there's just a ton of things. And so while I was on tour, they were actually you know, in touch with me saying, okay, well, who, give us a list of your uh, top choices. Your right, exactly. First call, what's your favorite studio? To, and they did a lot of the heavy lifting for me. Mm-hmm. So so talk a little bit about the, the studio where you did record. Yes, we recorded in L.A. at Oceanway Studios, mm-hmm. uh, right there on Sunset Boulevard, and we tracked uh, for about 10 days gotcha. with, with what I call the A-Team Rhythm Section. You oh, know? yeah. I mean, these were, basically, it was all my first call choices anyway. Okay. So uh, we uh, we went in there and tracked. Um, you know, the late Ricky Lawson played drums. Yeah, he's uh, he's all over the record, mm-hmm. and we we basically you know dedicated it to him because he passed away shortly after he made this record. That's so. right. Yeah. Well, give us a short list. I know you had uh, Michael Thompson and a few others. Just give us the the brief because these guys are you know pretty much like legends such as you that you can go so deep with each one of these guys. But you, let's start with Michael Thompson and tell us uh, how that collaboration went. Yeah. Well, Michael Thompson is uh, a dear friend of mine for years and years, and we we've done everything from Babyface Unplugged, all of his records. Um, we we work with David Foster, and we do all of those shows with David, sure. yeah, and uh, his records and the ones that he produces, and and so Michael and I have been, and we've actually written together, and we've been talking about you know the Nathan East solo album for so many years, it's ridiculous, <laughs> <laughs> and so he was, uh, you know, he, he's a, a very strong contributor um, musically. Spiritually, and he, you know, he came up with this great tune that we uh, put out called Daft Funk. Right, <laughs> and, uh, right. And so, uh, Michael Thompson, just a, a gem of a player and a, and a musician and a human being. Uh, we had a great time. Uh, Jeff Babco, another oh, yeah. MVP on yeah. this record. He's people that uh, know him. He went to the University of Miami. Plays yeah. on the Jimmy Kimmel show every night. That's right. Yeah. Uh, 
we were lucky to get him. I mean, really, the one week that he was off, um, we were able to get him in the studio. Nice. <laughs> so, he's he's actually been a guest on our show before. Oh, has he? Yeah, oh, yeah. he's been on the show before. Yeah, he's great. He's awesome. So I, I was very blessed to get him, as, as I was um, Tim Carmen, who came in uh, for the tracking dates. Actually, David Page. Uh, came in for the tracking dates. He just yeah. he just turned up at the studio. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> that's cool. Seriously, wow, it's the coolest thing ever. And um, we, we literally, we I was standing outside the front door, and he he turned up and he said, "What's going on?" And I said, a "Session." He says, I, "I'm on it." <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and and he came in and and played beautifully. Yeah, yeah. Um, as Ray Parker did, he he. He called me, and I think David told him about the record. And he called me, and says, "Come on, I gotta, I gotta play on something." And I said, yeah, "Absolutely." And then he called me. I, <laughs> I didn't call him soon enough, and he came back. Okay, come on, so, right there. Uh, <laughs> he got him on a few songs. <laughs> it, awesome. it was just, uh, you know, Rafael Padilla and amazing mm-hmm. percussionist. Yeah, he was able to stop by, and yeah. and uh, we got him on everything, as well as the great Paulinho da Costa. Yep. And, Vinny Call Utah, oh great filling games. I mean, it's like <laughs> the musical who's who. Yeah. Well, didn't you also have? Uh, didn't Eric Clapton and Stevie Wonder also show up for this record? You yeah. know what? So, uh, a couple of those guys did. You, you may or may not have heard of those those names. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, right. yeah they I never were, heard of those guys. <laughs> they were awesome. Stevie was. Um, we were fooling around with. I was kind of playing a little solo version of "Overjoyed" at a rehearsal one day at Carnegie Hall for. Uh, we were gathered at uh, one of Sting's Rainforest Benefits, and there was a little break. I was playing that tune. I didn't even know Stevie was in the room, and next thing I know, I hear harmonica. <laughs> oh, wow. That's cool. Wow. And, and then it's just and then it's just like, just me and Stevie playing through Overjoyed, and of course, I'm working out the changes, so now I have an audience of Sting and Elton John and James Taylor and Bonnie Raitt all sitting there staring, wow. and I'm kind of like working the arrangement out <laughs> as I go, but we got to the end, and they all applauded. And he came over and said, uh, if you ever record that, uh, call me. Wow. So, how can you pass an offer like that? No, you got to call him. <laughs> I would call him, too. <laughs> and he, you know, he came in first take. Um, same same with Eric. We we play Can't Find My Way Home yeah. on the show mm-hmm. live many times. And and so uh, when I rang him to see if he'd play on it, he, he just said, just say when, you know. Happy right. to help. Right. So, I mean, these are... These are wonderful musicians, but, but but even better friends. Right. And you also had one uh, very special guest on this album, and that would be your son, Noah. Noah is a very special guest. I mean, <laughs> again, it's it's great to uh, have a producer that has vision, because, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily try to get my son on the project. You know, it seems like, okay, I wouldn't push that. But, but he came in after piano <laughs> lessons one day, and Chris said, what are you working on? And... Um, and he he said yesterday, and he played it for him. And then Chris turns to me and says, "That's got to go on the record." Yeah. So it was kind of a. Uh, it, it's great that he he earned it, the merit of his playing, and and he's a lovely player. Uh, you know, I discovered when he was five years old that he has perfect pitch, and and he he can hear anything and just go over to the piano and play it. It's amazing. Yeah, you know. Well, speaking of Noah, you know, I I, I love that video that you shot with him playing uh, the Beatles yesterday. <laughs> Oh, thank you. That was very cool. That that was a uh, you know it took me about a dozen times before I could watch it without crying. Well, that's that's <laughs> what I was going to say. It almost made me cry. <laughs> it was 
very emotional, and and you can imagine as a as a father, yeah, you know, to to look up and see your son and just be so so proud and 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 see the look on his face. You know, his first session, he popped the headphones on and Jeez. sounded amazing in there, and yeah. and it was it was definitely a moment that I will never forget. Yeah. Well, you know, of the tracks I've heard so far uh, on your album, uh, your cover of Blind Faith's uh, Can't Find My Way Home that you mentioned a second ago is, is really strong. I really enjoyed that one. And I was just curious to know uh, what led you to create this tune, recreate this tune, and, and have, you, uh, have, you, have you ever played with Steve Winwood in the past? You know, I, have, I, I haven't played with Steve Winwood, but I was performing that song with Eric at the Albert Hall, uh-huh. Royal Albert Hall in London, uh, uh-huh. many years ago. And I got backstage, and there Steve Winwood said, "Oh man, I just heard you singing, and it sounded great." And I like <laughs> I was completely nervous, but he gave me the thumbs up. And um, I kind of always, in the back of my mind, knew that if I did go in and record, I wanted to record that song. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, you've also included a sort of an homage to your amazing involvement, which was so huge this past few months um, with Daft Punk, and you're. Uh, you know, you have a track on your, your new project called Daft Funk, which <laughs> I'm assuming it is an homage, but uh, let us know about this track a little bit. It's really, um, it's, it's cool, man. It's a really nice track. It's funky. Oh, thanks very much. It's, well, that's the, the track Michael Thompson made a demo, mm. a real nice demo on that and played yeah. it for me uh, before we went into the studio. And I loved, I loved this demo, and mm-hmm. we kind of uh, went in there and fooled around with it, and I, I wrote this chorus kind of to, to go with it. You, kind of an uplifting, you know, off-the-wall kind of chorus. And then we had the the uh, talk box on it. And, and you know, since since I've been kind of playing with Daft Punk, and I thought, oh, that'd be a fun title. Mm-hmm. A, a little homage and a, and a tip of the hat to the guys. Absolutely. And the other track that we've heard um, is Sir Duke, you know, that classic uh, Stevie Wonder song. And, and your arrangement of this track is, is, you know, a little quirkier than the original with some really, like, twisting chord structures and key changes, you know, and, and of course the song is so well known, but you, you keep the listener's ear bent on this one. It's one of those things is, you know, with Stevie Wonder, you can't really reinvent the wheel. Right. Because he, he is the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good I way of putting be, it. <laughs> I thought it'd be fun, you know, and I said, well, you, you got to do something different. And I was kind of fooling around with the, uh, you know, the, the little chorus there. And I thought, well, we could, we could make a couple little modulations and, and, you know, See if that, you know, keeps your interest up. You know, instead of not, instead of doing exactly like Stevie, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I would hope that if he hears it, that he likes it. Yeah. Hey guys, let's pause a moment and check out this arrangement of uh, Sir Duke, the Stevie Wonder classic, by our guest today, Nathan East. Thank you. 
Well, hey, the album's fantastic, and, and at the end of the show, we're going to tell everybody where they can they can go to find it. But we've got a, a lot of things we want to cover here, and um, and first of all, we want to we want to go back, and we want to go back to uh, your days in Philly, which puts you way back. <laughs> but you know, wow, we're going back. That's, that's where you were born, and yeah, and you're, but your family. I think you lived there till you're about like four years old, and then I think your family moved to San Diego uh, when you were yeah. You know, so obviously you come from a big family. There's eight kids and all. So tell me about the music culture in your family. And I'm assuming music was a real integral part of your upbringing, right? Absolutely. There was there was a piano in our house. We all took piano lessons. Yeah. My father and mother both, uh, not professionally, but they would both sit down and and they had you know some chops on piano. So yeah. there was always something you could kind of go to and make some music. And you know, music filled our house. We. My sisters, each one played flute, one played French horn. My eldest brother sings. Uh, my older brother David played guitar, so I was kind of hanging <laughs> along with him. Yeah, um, you know, and, and so everybody plays. Actually, we would go to Philly every summer, or you know, or so, and visit the relatives there. And you know, some of the Philly musicians would come over, and we'd play. Um, this was early days when I used to when I started playing, and so you. You get a little bit of the influence, you know, that, yeah. that Philly, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Philly influence, yeah. and and so I always kind of, um, uh, you know, I've always loved music, but I, I kind of started bass relatively late, age fourteen. So. Yeah, that's right. Because you played, you learned cello originally, right? Then I learned cello, which is yeah, which was my first real instrument that yeah. I learned to play in orchestra in junior high school. I learned to read music on it, and, and it kind of got me you know, acclimated to, you know, reading in the bass class and it got my ear trained and and so um yeah, that was that was kind of the start of uh something that I'm still still working on to this day. <laughs> well, <Yeah. neat. laughs> well when you discovered that love for the bass guitar and um uh, you know you eventually got involved with a band. It was, it was called Power. That was in high school and uh you know this band was an early stepping stone and a, a a good learning experience for you, wasn't it? Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, this band had a lot of star players in it. It just happened to have my older brother David playing guitar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the drummer, um Skipper Ragsdale and Hollis Gentry um, really great sax player, Carl Evans Jr. Um, on keyboards. These guys were, were stars in their own right. Carl Evans Jr. went on to form a band called Fatburger. Wow, okay, oh, that's yeah. Carl, that's yeah. right, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, so, you know, unfortunately he had uh, diabetes and passed away a few years ago. Uh, okay. But he was he was one of my um, musical brothers like from the time we started playing, and we we grew up from kindergarten on up, so... Um, lots of music going on, and, and this was all going on in San Diego. Uh, Power was was a band that kind of got the calls to play when people would come to town and, and need a band. So that's that was the Barry White connection. He used our band, and he literally hired the whole band on the spot after he heard us. Yeah, well, you know, it's 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 funny because um, and that question came from actually from a correspondent that actually lives in San Diego. His name is Max Zape, but he has another question. He says, uh, and I think there's a little bit of humor wrapped in this one. He says Max also uh, mentioned that your taller, more handsome brother James East, <laughs> who, ah. who who is also an excellent bassist, and apparently he's uh, he's been with Sergio Mendes for a while, right? Yes. Wow. Yeah, Sergio Mendes, and and to be honest, James. He, a lot of the gigs that I couldn't cover, he was able to cover for me. So there was a time where Lionel Richie, 
um, used him, Natalie Cole, and he even sat in with uh, Eric Clapton on a rehearsal that I couldn't make. Wow, very <laughs> cool. Very cool. Wow. You know, and, you know, that wasn't the, we've been talking about your musical influences, but uh, tell us, you know, about, about church. You know, uh, so many people that we've talked to, you know, they inevitably inevitably get started, you know, playing in church. Uh, was that an outlet for you uh, where you were introduced um, to music in church playing? That, that is, that, that's the reason I'm in music. And the, and the <laughs> first bass I picked up was, was right there in church. Look at that. At the altar of uh, Christ the King Church um, in San Diego and... Yeah. Uh, there, my brothers were playing in church already. Mm-hmm. They, um, my big brother Ray, who's actually now a, a priest, look at that. Uh, have parish in D.C. Um, he was he was kind of leading the music there, and then David was playing guitar. So I kind of was tagging along, and I just ran into this bass sitting there. And nobody was playing. I picked it up, mm-hmm. and that was it. Next thing you know, I was in the band. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's exactly. We play every Sunday in church, and it's just uh, yeah, I think. I think that's a place that's great because it's very forgiving. I mean, nobody's gonna nobody's gonna bust you if you, <laughs> if you play a few bum notes in church. <laughs> <laughs> you never know; it could be a tough crowd. I don't. <laughs> Crowd's a little more forgiving. <laughs> yeah, I think it was. Uh, in fact, I, I think last year I read somewhere that where Justin Timberlake, who who grew up in church, also playing. I think there was a quote where he said, "And if you play bad in church, you know, all you get is an amen anyway." <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You play no, real bad. <laughs> you're, you're learning forgiveness in church anyway. So what better way? To, uh, That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So start with the musicians. No right? doubt. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, some of some of your early influences were guys like you know James Jamerson and Paul McCartney and and even one of our past Inside Music Cast guests uh, Chuck Rainey. And uh, each of these bassist styles varied, but but I'm just curious what you absorbed from each of these guys that you know kind of helped find tune how you play well it's funny i should probably be giving these guys a percentage of what i earn <laughs> every one of their t- techniques and kind of instincts mm-hmm. you know of course paul mccartney is just very melodic and yeah it's hard to describe but just he's he's a bass player's bass player you know yeah, yeah. people like him and sting um that lead their own bands pizza terra these guys are awesome bass players. Mm-hmm. And so I listen to them. Chuck Rainey and James Jamison basically are the foundation of bass <laughs> for me. Yeah. yeah. And and I'm sure for a lot of bass players. You know, Chuck Chuck Rainey's one of those guys that literally anything that he played on, all I have to do is see his name on the record and I'd buy it. Yeah. Yeah. At one point in time you're sixteen years old and Barry White calls you. You know, this is the kind of thing right. that, that doesn't happen just by chance, okay, to anyone. So, so tell us how uh, how sort of Barry discovers you, and, and not only you, but he literally hired the the whole band that you were playing in. Yeah, you know, that's a credit to to his you know observation of talent, and you know, here we are, this band, you know, in San Diego, and and like I said, it was full of pretty much kind of an all star scenario, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, on, on a local level. But he he was perceptive enough to hear the band and think, you know, these guys could be my band. And we were a little <laughs> eager beavers, so we got a call and went up to Los Angeles, met in his office, and our and our eyes were just wide open, starry eyed. I think he, <laughs> yeah. when he offered us five hundred dollars a week, you know, yeah. and we share rooms, we we were giving each other five in front of him, you know. <laughs> 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 it was like, but uh, you know, it was just. 
it, it was a moment I'll never forget because it's like, you know, a guy like that who just had so many number one hit records and literally he was packing arenas and, and you know, here you are, 16 years old, next thing you know, you're in a tuxedo at Madison Square Garden <laughs> yeah. eleven limited orchestra, you know. You know, you know what the first thought that came to my mind when I when I learned that about you, sixteen year old traveling all over the country. I thought about your parents, and I, you know, were they a little worried that a sixteen year old was out on tour, or were they supportive? I, they had to be supportive because you, you know, know they were they were actually very supportive. Um, they they could realize an opportunity um, yeah. as well, and they were just you know to be careful. And they always they always um, promoted you know me getting my education, but. Being on tour at 16 with Barry White is is an education in itself. I yeah. often say I went to BWU, Barry White University. <laughs> yeah. You learned a lot quickly. But yeah. You know what I thought was kind of interesting, almost kind of humorous, but you, you played on so many Barry White records, but, you know, the common fan wouldn't know it because Barry didn't list musicians in the liner notes for fear that his sound was going to be stolen. Is that right? This is the absolute truth, yeah. which is... It, it drove me crazy because you know you'd you'd go make this incredible record and then you'd be so proud of it and you'd crack the record open and you'd go blind looking for your name. You know, like oh man, it's got to be on here somewhere. <laughs> exactly. His meanwhile, his name was on there about five times. The album cover yeah. concept, no arranged by, produced by, directed yeah. by, played by, written by, <laughs> written by, but. but Try to find, and, and it's unlucky because you know you're, you're talking about guys like Lee Rittenauer, Ray oh, yeah. Parker Jr. Exactly. And all the all the ace musicians were on those records. Yeah, jeez, I remember that's, the. Um, I can just go on and on about all these amazing, amazing tracks that that I used to listen to on the White Gold album, and I'm like, and there you. Were, I mean, we knew you were playing on these things, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> whether you got names in there or not, they were just. It was beautiful music. This guy knew how to create some amazing sounds. Uh, he sure did, and he. I did learn a lot in his camp because he'd come down. He'd just come down the line and sing everybody's parts to them, and mm. you know, he'd come up with these great lines. Yeah. Or, little bits and pieces and so i mean that's how he learned he, he knew how to make a hit record it was great to yeah. kind of uh be there kind of on school over there well you know soon after you were getting calls from guys like uh, john mclaughlin and, and hubert laws and, and and i guess you migrated up to la and at such a young age you know you quickly made your way you know right into the la scene but initially i guess it, it wasn't it patrice ruchin who heard you play in san diego and invited you to play in some gigs with her Yes, wow, absolutely right, and she's she's probably one of my friends of longest standing here in this town. I mean, at least uh, we're we're talking about man, thirty five, forty year friendship. Yeah, <laughs> it's right. amazing. Yeah. And uh, she she would come to San Diego, and, and we played a couple of gigs together. And she was very instrumental in in spreading the word about Nathan East, this bass player, you know, from San Diego. And so, I mean, Hubert Laws called me directly. Um, I played a clinic with Billy Cobham at State College, yeah. and he went directly to John McLaughlin and said, you got to call this bass player. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> what a reference. So I thought it was my buddies playing a joke with it. I named it John McLaughlin. Come on, who is this? You know? Oh, man. Yeah. And uh, he had to call me back twice because I, I totally didn't believe it was him. That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> so, well, you've got to be proud of yourself in a way because because even though you were young and getting your chops and you were getting gigs, and you still managed to... To stay in school or to get to school and to earn your your degree at uh, at UC uh, San Diego, 
that, that must have been sort of important for you and maybe even for your family. That's, that might be an assumption, but tell us about that because that doesn't happen too often. Well, you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, there was an opportunity to, to go on the road, and it was about three or four weeks before I was going to graduate. And I think that was the call from McLaughlin. And, mm-hmm. and I called one of the most important people in my life. And of course, my parents were, you know, they, they were always um, promoting education. And for them, they, they said, you know, you always need something that, to have something to fall back on. So they were really... Um, they were really big on education, yeah. but my grandmother in New Jersey, I called her and she said, "If there's not one thing that you do for me, uh, finish your school." Yeah. You know, so she uh, she was, you know, she sealed the deal for me, and so I stayed off the road long enough to just get my degree, and and then after that, I could I could do whatever I wanted. Yeah, yeah, that's Very really cool. cool. You know, um, you know, Nathan, we could spend so much uh, an entire show just talking about your thirty years that you've been working with uh, with Eric Clapton. But in let's sort of bring this into a micro nutshell here, and as to regards, uh, you know, your relationship with him, it's it's been really special. And after so much time, you know, I would imagine the two of you are pretty much like like brothers, like family. When you get uh, together and you travel, explain a little bit about your relationship as to where it was at the beginning and and where it is now. Yeah, I mean, Eric is first of all he's he's absolutely one of the, the greatest guys you ever meet. You know, forget the guitar, forget singing, forget music. It just mm-hmm. as a pal, he's great. Yeah, he's, he's very bright. He's he's interested in a lot of things, and and he literally has has become like a a lot like a brother over the years. Um, we started out in the, in the early '80s. The first project that I did with him was called Behind the Sun. Mm-hmm. And it was a Warner Brothers project, and Phil Collins actually introduced me to Eric yeah. at a pub, kind of in the English countryside. We, we were working on the Philip Bailey Chinese Wall album, and it's we went around, met Eric, and just you know have a pint together, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> that was that was probably around 1983, uh-huh. and and then I recorded with Eric. And then the next time I met him, it was at Live Aid. He and Phil Collins were standing off to the side of the stage. I was playing with Kenny Loggins. That's right. Yeah. And when I came off, you know, came off stage, Eric was standing. The first thing he said, "Hey, what, what are you doing? Let's let's go hang out." You know, he said, love the sound. And uh, one thing led to another. He asked me to play on the August album, uh, which Phil Collins was producing as well with Tom Dowd. Right. We're in the studio. And next thing you know, the management. You know, comes in there and says, "Well, what do you think about Montreux Jazz Festival, Oslo?" And he he rattle off about a half a dozen dates. You know, yeah. Royal Albert <laughs> Hall, London, and um, that was the beginning of our our little quartet and and actually touring with him. So yeah. uh, it it just the family it, it just grew from there. We just you know been around the world fifty times. We were just <laughs> in um, Japan, and, and yeah. they gave Eric uh, a little award because he was there. Forty years ago was his first time playing there. Wow! Um, o- <laughs> over two hundred shows, and um, he couldn't have been sweeter because he had, you know, I was I was there. He said, "Well, you were you were here with me for for most of this. So come on, let's celebrate." <laughs> yeah, I, I remember when uh, you know when Behind the Sun, you know, it was uh, it was released. Um, I remember reading those liner notes, and I remember if I if I recall correctly that. You know, Clapton was a huge Muddy Waters fan. You know, he's a big blues guy. 
and uh, and I, if I'm correct, that the, the title had some to do with uh, a record that Muddy Waters had done in the past because he was just playing everything that he would do always have revert to certain homages of of the guys and you know in Louisiana and the blues. You know, he just loved that stuff. Wow, you know what that's. Uh That'd be worth uh, investigating then, because I didn't even know that. Yeah, I think a uh, bunch of influences there, but just a little caveat. But I know, I know he loves Muddy Waters. Well, you just mentioned a second ago that you just got back from uh, Japan on this tour, but and I was just one other question about Eric, or one one thought was this: this current band is like an is like an all star lineup, and you know yeah. you've got you know, not only yourself on bass, but you know Paul Carrick and Chris Staten on keys, and and Paul, of course, on vocals or backing vocals, and you've got Steve Gadd on drums, and amazing. I was just curious about Carrick. How long has he been out with Clapton? I mean, he's such he's always been one of my favorite vocalists. Well, one of mine too. He's he's a new new addition to the family. Yeah. And um so he's been um probably just like very recently, um, maybe the last tour or so, joined up with Eric. And and again, he's a lovely person and I I adore his voice too. He's he, Eric actually has him sing a, a few songs in the show. Yeah. Um, including How Long. It was, yeah. it was classic Jeez. way back. Oh, that's right. cool. Um, the old Ace song. And yeah. so, yeah, so he gets he gets a couple features. That's and cool. he's just, he's perfect. He's a great player, great singer, great guy to be in. And this particular band, I'll tell you what, it, we, we had a great time. I mean, it was literally probably one of the most enjoyable musical experiences I've had. Yeah, Paul is a guy I'd like to get on our show, too, at some point. No doubt. Yeah, well, we'll uh, we'll let him know. Okay, I appreciate that. I'm sure he'd love to be on there. Hey guys, let's let's take a break and uh, let's check out this foreplay track that appears on Nathan East's new uh, solo project, and this is 101 Eastbound from Nathan East's new solo project on Inside Music Cast. Nathan, a lot of our, in fact, a, a huge number of our listeners um, are in Europe, and um, 
and whether they are or not, they're they're huge Toto fans. So, you know, as we all know, um, a few years back, you know, you got the call from the guys at Toto to uh, to go on the road with them, and you know, for some festival gigs in Europe in support of uh, their brother uh, Mike Mike Percaro. And um, yeah. so, tell us a little bit about that experience with playing with Toto. We followed you guys. We've uh, we've chatted with Lee and, and Simon before, and and uh, uh. but we want to have your take as to coming in into a very tight knit unit of amazing musicians. And uh, tell us a little bit about that, would you? Well, first of all, all those guys are are my friends for for three decades sure. at least. I yeah. mean, we uh, we've been in working as a group on projects. In the 80s, we did I Love L.A. with Randy Newman or that whole album. That's right. Lots of different things. Paige wrote and produced George Benson, Lady Love Me, and I was on there with Jeff Picaro. Mm-hmm. So we, we've, been, we've been a family forever. And so when yeah. they called me, um, first of all, it was, you know, it was an honor to get the call and also the, such a worthy cause to have our, our brother Mike Picaro. Um, yeah. It was just automatic and and you know nothing but laughter and smiles you know when we hit the, the rehearsal room because <laughs> all of those songs i mean literally playing with toto is like playing a top 40 gig <laughs> yeah <laughs> rosanna yeah africa hold the line i mean just one right after another hit and, and we do these things and we do these shows over in europe and it's like everybody knows all the lyrics yeah. and <laughs> it's it's really a tribute to their um musicianship and they they wrote songs back when they were teenagers right that are 35 years later are still relevant and still people love you know and I, I think that's just a tribute to their genius mm-hmm. every one of them too steve Lukather, i mean this this guy i mean he played bass on beat it you know right, <laughs> right exactly unbelievable <laughs> we, we've had we've had all those guys on the show. We've had Luke on, really? the, yeah, and Eddie and I. We've 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 known we've known those guys for a while too. So yeah, they're they're amazing. Uh, they're just they're so fun to watch and so fun to be around. Especially, you know, you probably got some some Steve Lukather <laughs> jokes from the the tour bus, but we probably don't. You know, we don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trust me, we have some. Next time we'll have to do a whole. <laughs> Lukey is yeah, he's the funniest guy ever. He keeps everybody in stitches on the road. And, uh, but it's great, you know. Steve Picaro is, is back yeah. in the band. Yeah, he does any, anything Picaro, and I'm in. You know, yep. those guys, that family is is just amazing. And, and Joe Picaro yep. must be, um, you know, so proud. You know, he he had an entire rhythm section. You know, all geniuses. <laughs> That's right. And um, David Page, you know, and Marty Page is his dad. You know, who, sure. who arranged all these great records. Yep. Um, and so, I mean, the musicianship is just stellar. Yep. Well, you know, a question that a lot of Toto fans have been asking is uh, about you, actually. And they're wanting to know, will you be going out on the road with them uh, this year? And have you been tapped at all to lay down bass parts for their new studio album? You know, it's, it's early. They've, they've actually called me before I went on tour with Eric. Uh, we were trying to get in the studio to, to lay down some parts. Um, but uh, we, you know, time ran out on us. Uh-huh. And yes, we're heading to Japan um, next month. Okay. So uh, we will be hitting the road. All right, great. And it's just, um, those are my my brothers in music. (laughs) 
Well, that's good. I'm sure the fans will. I know that they're they're hoping you'll be out with them, and I know that's been a kind of a question that people have been asking us as well if we knew anything. So we're glad to have you on the show to clear that up. <laughs> yeah, there you have it. All right. Well, hey, this next set of questions are ones that were uh, supplied by uh, our correspondents with Inside Music Cast. Uh, guys like Uwe Reith uh, in Germany. We've got Mikhail Engstrom in Sweden, Scott Sheriff down in Nashville, and Brian Pearson in uh, up near Chicago. And also, uh, we mentioned Max Zape. But uh, and the first question is, is a couple of records feature – this is going back a little bit. A couple of features um, – records feature collaborations with your brother, uh, Marcel, uh, who appears right. as, a, ha, as a co-composer of Al Jarreau's song Fallen, Phil Bailey's Go, and keyboardist uh, on Gail Ann Dorsey's record, The Corporate World. And he, he just wants to – this is from Uwe. He wants to know uh, how strong was Marcel's influence on your career and, and vice versa. Man, first of all, these are – I mean, these are – Deeply, people that know <laughs> yeah. uh, what I've been doing. I mean, yeah. <laughs> this is uh, pretty obscure information. <laughs> but Go, which was one of my favorite songs that Marcel wrote. I think he and Ralph Johnson wrote that for Philip Bailey's mm-hmm. record. And they literally handed a demo of that to me yeah. as I was getting on the plane for for London. Um, great song. I mean, it's it's like that could be an Earth, Wind, and Fire song. Yep, you know? yep definitely. And then. Um, Fallen, Al Jarreau, Marcel is, is just a gifted, gifted uh, composer. And uh-huh. one, one day I came home, we had a studio together at our house, and I came home and he had this idea going, and I just said, what is that? You know, And, and he's, <laughs> been, he's been my go-to guy forever. I mean, we collaborated on 101 Eastbound for okay. uh, four plays, and, and on, on every four-play album I think we've written together. Yeah. Really? That's uh, cool. That's cool. Y- yeah. And then so, you know... I re redid one on one eastbound on on this record and Marcel also co produced Overjoyed mm-hmm. with Stevie and so he's he's been a very important part of my of my musical career. Yeah. And uh, we just mentioned Al Jarreau a second ago. He he was on our show uh, at the beginning of the year and I tell you, I, I had I never had so much fun. He was he's such a character. Oh Al is amazing. <laughs> yeah, Al is my neighbor. He's he's uh Literally walking distance from my house, and I absolutely love Al. He's still, still one of the greatest, greatest voices and and guys you, you ever want to meet. And yeah. we've we've had so much good fun on tour, and and you know even even what we did thirty years ago, some of the live in London, it still just keeps coming back, and people keep asking about it. And for me, it it was an honor to to get to work with him. Hey, let's talk about your first. Um gig as a, as a full-time producer, and it was, uh, I believe it was Gail Ann Dorsey's record in 1989. Was that your first experience as, as a producer? And aside from the role as a bassist, tell us about the experience of the project as, uh, as to why you, you know, you know involved uh, Porcupine Tree's drummer, Gavin Harrison, and not uh, Steve Rowan on that project. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it's, it's, it's great because she, being a bass player, you know, it was an honor to get a call from her, and she had this deal with Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. and they said, okay, I'll tell you what, we want you to produce the record because you understand bass, you understand, you know, what we should do, and she, you know, she had been familiar with my work, so it was really a great opportunity. I actually got a flat over in England, and and we worked together, and to this day, we're, we're good friends, and she was a great, uh, great artist very um, innovative, creative, and I love what she came up with, and I, I love the opportunity to, to jump in there and, 
and work with somebody. It was it was pretty much you know just bringing her demos alive. Yeah, um, we had different different drummers. I I thought Steve ended up on some of that record, but I guess um, I guess Ferroni didn't. But he he was he's he's always mm-hmm. he's been one of my go to guys, <laughs> especially when we were working in England. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, I want to I want to merge sort of two questions together, and it has to do with uh, you know the the digital age of the '80s, in which uh, you know you started uh, working in on projects that required some programming of drums. That you know, remember the good old Roland TR eight hundred eight drum machines, you know that that were used exactly. for on Philip, you know, on Phil Collins's drums, that kind of thing. But overall, in looking at the snapshot of what that digital age was, Nathan, you know, um, with the drum machines, the samplers, the the bass boxes, the Moogs, you know, you know, we've talked to some guys that they sort of suffered through that because, you know, let's just face it, the digital era took away some jobs from drummers and maybe, you know, bassists and that type of thing. What's your take about the digital period and how it affected the whole industry? Well, I, I can remember when different producers and artists, you know, as soon as the drum machine came out, uh, it's over for drummers, you know, yeah, and, right. and right. I thought that was one of the most ridiculous things you ever hear. I mean, why you wouldn't want to have Jeff Beccaro come in and play drums on your right. record? I don't care. <laughs> we still all want that. Right. It's just like, so when I heard that, I just thought, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, and, and it, it wasn't true. You know, it wasn't over for drummers. So these things, again, for me, become great tools to make a demo. <laughs> but, right. um, you know, it's kind of, and, and of course you hear records, Using the technology, and some people actually are able to to use it, you know, tastefully, and where it really means something. But tell you what, you, you could just, for me, you could never replace the emotion and the heart of a room full of guys playing music and using yeah. their instincts and reacting to each other. And you know, there's just for me, that's the magic in mm. music. Yeah. I don't yeah. think that will ever be replaced by any machine. I hope not. <laughs> I don't know our lifetime anyway. <laughs> Plus, you know, would you go to a concert and watch a bunch of machines, you know, somebody <laughs> play on all the machines? You just right. wouldn't do it. <laughs> hey, well, you know, we've, we've had a lot of bassists on um, on the show, you know, everyone from Mark King to Chuck Rainey, and, and uh, everybody gives you their, their different approach of uh, technology and what they're using. But 30 years ago, you had already used the Yamaha BB-5000, um, you know, five-string bass. What prompted you to uh, to switch over to the uh, from the four to the five-string? And uh, and where did that benefit you in, in uh, the performance uh, realm? Well, what happened is, you know, a lot of tunes like the, the normal four-string bass, the lowest note you can play on it is E. Yeah. Unless you tune it down to E flat or D. And I just started finding myself tuning down an E flat, D, D flat, <laughs> yeah. D. And, and pretty soon I'm thinking, you know, you either get, you know, you can get uh, a hip shot or a low extension. A lot of people uh, on upright, there's a, a an extension. They actually right. extend the fingerboard. And then um, you can get down to low C. So that's when I actually felt the need for a five string. So that I always have, you know, not that you're going to live down there, but just have those notes available uh, and extend the range of the instrument. Mm -hmm. Then, obviously, if you want to play higher, then you extend to six strings, so you you have range in both directions that Mm -hmm. you you have Mm -hmm. available to you. Yeah. Well, um, this is a question that comes from uh, Mikhail Engstrom in uh, Sweden, and he said, you know, we all know about your involvement in foreplay, but uh, there was an album recorded back in 1982 that was kind of a hint 
of what was to later become, uh, you know, a, a foreplay. And it was you, Leah Rittenauer, Harvey Mason, and, and Don Grusin. You guys recorded an album together with uh, Japanese fusion giants Cassiopeia. And uh, the album was titled 4x4, and it was kind of a dueling album with both bands sharing duties and doubling parts on each song. And, and he, uh, McCann wants to know, can you recall some memories about this project and maybe a little about the recording process? Well, absolutely. And, and funny you should mention that because I was just in Japan and, and that album came up again. Yeah. Uh, Tetsuo, uh, on, uh, Tetsuo on bass, he's, he's, a, he's like a, a star of bass over in Japan. And I remember meeting him. <laughs> wow. And each one, of the, each one of the guys in the band was kind of like a star. So you had Harvey and the drummer, um, you know, hanging out. You had Lee and the guitar player and Don keyboard player and we were all kind of like you know looking at each other okay how do you do that and it was just fun to it was a great concept and and any quartet you know that's the you know probably the standard instrumentation with the guitar keyboards uh, drums and bass so yeah fast forward to probably another another decade uh foreplay comes along and there you have three of the guys same kind of guy uh you know lee me and harvey you know, playing with Bob James on his record, and, yeah. and Bob saying, "You know what? This this could be a group." <laughs> so you're saying that was that kind of was the genesis of foreplay, right? Pretty much. Yeah. And you know, again, it's it's just interesting how you have little different families or the chemistry between players. And I know that you know when Bob came to record his solo album uh, called Grand Piano Canyon, he he asked Harvey Mason, you know who should I use on bass? Uh, and then Harvey recommended me. And then he asked Lee, yeah. who should I use on bass? Lee recommended me. So it was kind of like, I guess I better call Nate. You know? <laughs> That's good. And um, so it was, it was obviously I'm very honored that the guys thought enough to recommend me. And, yeah. and even more so that we, you know, to this day have a group that, that um, we continue to enjoy making music with. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk drummers for a second, because, you know, obviously, you know, you're talking a rhythm section, you need a bassist and a drummer primarily. And, and, and I'm curious about, you know, you, you've worked with so many over the years. And who are some drummers that, you know, you really have enjoyed working with? Well, another great question. Um, here's, here's an answer that probably you wouldn't expect, but Phil Collins is one of my favorite drummers. No, I, I don't doubt that. <laughs> He's amazing. And I love it. Um, I think I used to say, you know, if they if they said you got to handcuff yourself to one for the rest of your life, uh, without a doubt, it would be Jeff Percaro. Okay, I just absolutely um, love and adore playing with him. Um, there's just there's only one, and nobody swings like that. You know? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but then then I've been blessed to just have really really good um, unions with people like John Robinson, of course Harvey yeah. Mason, yeah. you know Simon Phillips. Um, you know, and then people like Steve Gadd and Steve Ferroni, man, they're all like just flip a coin. <laughs> the <first laughs> right. Show up, you're going to be smiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, Vinnie Caliuta. Yeah, you know, yeah. Come on, he's a monster. Yeah, <laughs> he's just uh, unbelievable. Yeah, you know, and it's to the point where you know when we see each other, we just start laughing because we know. We know we don't have to work that day. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's one. There's one more drummer that um, you know. It's it, he's one of our favorites. And in fact, I was just watching a video with um, the Grusin GRP All Stars. Just in fact, it was just yesterday, 
And that's uh, Carlos Vega. Did you um, did you ever have a chance to to play or watch him play? Oh no, we played together a lot. As a matter of fact, he's he's one of the names um, that uh, is on my list of guys that you know all time favorites. We had a great time together. Yeah. Um, his his birthday was the day before mine, and we we always celebrated our birthdays together. And, and uh, I I truly miss him. Um, you know, I've got one question here from Scott uh, Sheriff, who's in Nashville, uh, and he's also a performer, um, you know, there in the Nashville scene. He asks about the neat project uh, for Anita Baker, Conversations, the record, and uh, and it was re- recorded, um, you know, with uh, Greg Fillingaines, uh, you know, in the rhythm section. Tell us a little bit about what you recall. That was a beautiful album. Yeah, Compositions was a, a record that she wanted to be um, a live record. I could, like, we were... We were doing all doing takes in the studio together, including her singing. And we get to the fade, and if she didn't like what you know what she sang or whatever, she'd start over again. And we think, well, you can hold up. No, she wanted it live. You know? <laughs> so she wanted to be able to write on the album. This was all recorded live. So yeah, um, you know, and that's when you have you know you got the AA team. I mean, Billing Gaines, right? Peroni. You, then you just get performances. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget how how much uh, fun we were just having, just recording these songs, and just like it was almost like you're playing a concert. Yeah, exactly right. But in the studio. Yeah. Well, Nathan, we're about ready to to wrap up here, but it, it really would be in a, uh, uh, it'd be rather inappropriate if we didn't uh, at least address you know your work with uh, that is just so so uh, global right now with Daft Punk, Nile Rodgers, and Pharrell Williams on the Grammy Award winning "Get Lucky," and this must have been just a neat project that just fell from heaven. And and uh, you know how did you get that gig? You know, was it Nile or was it uh, Pharrell? I mean, how did this whole thing happen that you were just brought into this whole? thing that just exploded in front of the world <laughs> well it's a good question those guys are actually you know music scholars i mean they study everything you know from over in france mm-hmm. and so i was just honored that you know they kind of included me in the in the lineup that they wanted to recreate this this era of of you know not disco but you know a little retro uh, vibe, you know, so they, you know, they look to people like Nile and Paul Jackson Jr. And, and so when I got the call, I just thought, oh, what a great, you know, what, what a great call to get. And I was familiar with their music, you know, Tron had just, I had just seen that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to, to actually get to go in and work with the guys in the studio was really a lot of fun. <laughs> we actually recorded Get Lucky first time around, and, and then it kind of made its way to New York. And once Nile put the guitar on it, it turned it into a different tune altogether. And, and nine months later, they came back and you know called me in, and I, and I just said we got we got to redo the bass to to, to match all yeah. the funk that he's bringing mm-hmm. to the track now. Mm-hmm. Not that it wasn't funky before, but I mean now it just it had to be redone. And I kind of was doing my <laughs> channeling of Bernard Edwards and the Chic vibe, you know, because it really was exactly uh, felt like a period piece, you know, right? And so uh, I, nobody could know. I mean, uh, there's no way that I could tell you that I that I would know that that song would blow up like that. I know that in the studio, you're dancing and it feels great, and you're thinking, "Wow, yeah. this is incredible." But you just could never, ever predict that it's just yeah. going to be 
every radio. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's everywhere. It is. It's everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> you know, over 100 countries, number one, you know. Wow. Amazing. amazing. That's incredible. And then they, you know, obviously the 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 cherry on top was was when they were asked to perform it at the Grammys, and then they just said, okay, let's, let's yeah. get everybody that played on the record and come on in and just celebrate this, you know, this mega hit. And uh, so it was great. And then the mashup with Stevie Wonder and Pharrell and Niall, and it, it was just that couldn't was have fun. been better. Yeah, it was the best performance of the night. It <laughs> totally was. <laughs> it was. Uh, thanks. <laughs> no, we, we had a natural ball. I mean, and when you're on stage and you look out and see Paul McCartney and Ringo dancing and <laughs> yeah. uh, Beyonce yeah. and Katy Perry and Yoko Ono and everybody up to the top row, you're saying, yeah. really? Yeah, right. You know, I love my life. And if I come back, I'm gonna, I have to come back as me because I'm having way too much fun. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's a good quote. Hey, uh, one more question from a correspondent. This is from uh, Kim Riley, and she's down in Boca Raton, Florida. And, and she uh, she mentioned, of course, you know, you've worked with so many musicians throughout the span of your career, but she wants to know if there's anyone you'd like to work with that maybe you haven't had a chance to work with yet. That's a great question. You know, I'd love to tour with Sting, but he's a bass player. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing with McCartney, you know. If he's yeah, right. Bass player. But those are guys that I'd love to tour with. I'd love to do something with Pat Metheny. Yeah. He's wow. Just one of my oh yeah favorite musicians ever, and I'd love to. Do, and and Stevie Dan is another group that I've always thought you know yeah. I'd, I'd love to work with those guys. That's cool. Um, Miles Davis is no longer. I don't have that opportunity, but he was one of the guys on my list as well. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. a warning to Freddie Washington. He's been a guest on our show, so watch out, watch out, Freddie. Nathan wants your job. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. No. Don't. Don't want to take anybody's gig, but, <laughs> but sometimes on your wish list, you know, it's like, oh, man, I love those guys' music so much. And again, Chuck Rainey was all over those records, and, you know, all of us bass players were re- literally, you know, backing it up, learning his, his lines note for note. Wow, yeah, amazing. Yeah. Well, guys, let's pause for a second, and I, I do want to take a listen to a sample of this track, Can't Find My Way, of course, the Blind Faith classic tune. And, of course, this is Nathan's arrangement from his uh, new solo project that's due out tomorrow. Come down from your throne and leave your body alone. Somebody must change. You are the reason for when it's so long. Somebody holds the key. Well, I'm near the end and I just 
Well, hey, Nathan, this has been a really fun chat. I, I you know, like I said, we we could spend a couple more hours with you. I'm sure, and, and you probably wouldn't like that because you got things to do. But <laughs> what I'm doing, this is good fun talking to you guys. I love it. But uh, but uh, just before we wrap up here, going back to uh, your album that's going to be released on uh, on March 25th, a self-titled album, Nathan East, and uh, yeah, you can hear some tracks right now. I think on uh, the Yamaha website, right? Y- Yamaha Entertainment. Yeah, Yam- Yamaha Entertainment Group dot com. That's has, right. Has little uh, snippets of the, of this, the record right now. Mm-hmm. Right, right, and then the, of course you can you can actually purchase the album there. I think you can buy it that. You can buy a special edition version at the Yamaha Entertainment Group. Are there any other area places where uh, listeners can go and and check, track that album down? Yes, they can go to Amazon, yeah, iTunes, okay. and um, it's it's ready to be uh, for pre orders. As a matter of fact. I was going to pre-order it on both of those just so I can make sure I get it when it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's great. <laughs> That's the only way I'm going to get it. I've been waiting for Yamaha to send me one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, iTunes, Amazon, and, and Yamaha Entertainment Group. Uh, also, NathanEast.com has a link to the site. That's right. That's yeah. right. And before we go, I want to give special thanks to Sky McIntyre at Yamaha for arranging this interview for us today. We really Thank appreciate you, Sky. that, Sky. Thank you. Yay, Sky. Yeah, thanks, Sky. And, and everybody at Yamaha Entertainment Group, i got to say, you know, when you... I've never had a team <laughs> before working on my behalf like this. Yeah. Right? And this, this is really a wonderful team, and it takes me to the spirit of, uh, you know, back back in the day when labels really made a fuss and, and right. really, you know, got the word out. So um, I couldn't be more thankful for all my buddies over at Yamaha Entertainment Group, Chris Giro for founding the label and being a a great visionary and uh, co-producer and co-writer with me on this. And um, we're really looking forward to uh, to getting this music out to the world. Perfect. Well, that's great. We're making a fuss over it, too, here at Inside Music Cast. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, guys. No problem. Well, I, Take I, care. I sure appreciate it, and it's just it's great to be involved in music. I mean, to, to do what you do for a living, that's something that you love. You'll never work another day in your life. Yeah. Hey, thank you very much, Nathan. We appreciate it. All the best, guys. All right. Take care. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Nathan East for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, and Mats Unilad for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. 